1: There are wildly divergent reports on the success rate of spinal surgery for back pain. Some orthopedic centers and centers dedicated to spinal issues report a 75 to 80% or even 90% improvement of back pain following surgery. Other research does not report such large success rates, so the question remains, What can give us relief from chronic pain? Today we'll be exploring the mind-body connection with pain and the mechanism of chronic pain with spine specialist surgeon Dr. David Hanscom who has over 30 years experience in the care of chronic back pain. He advocates something called DOC which stands for direct your own care and he only performs surgery on patients he feels are certain to find relief through surgery. Today we'll be navigating non-surgical treatment options for chronic back pain and other chronic ailments with our guest Dr. David Hanscom. David Hanscom is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon specializing in complex spine problems in all areas of the spine. A significant part of his practice is devoted to performing surgery on patients who have had multiple prior spine surgeries. He's a founder of the Puget Sound Spine Interest Group, a nonprofit educational group which provides a regional forum for physicians to share ideas regarding optimum spine care. And is the author of the revised edition of Back in Control A Surgeon's Roadmap out of chronic pain. Join us for the next hour as we explore the framework of the Direct Your Own Care project and the preoperative process with our guest, Dr. David Hanscom. I'm Justine Willis-Thoms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. David, it's so good to sit across from you once more.
2: Yeah, thank you. Time goes by very quickly, doesn't it? It
1: does. It seems like just the other day we were having a conversation, but that was many years ago. And I would love for our listeners to catch themselves up on, on a little bit of your story, how you, what your philosophy is, and where you are now with it.
2: Well, things have changed a lot in four years. I published the first book in 2012 based on my experience and my patient's experience, but I didn't know the neuroscience as well as I do now. So a friend of mine made it a hobby to download 11,000 articles on the neuroscience of my book just as a hobby. He's a great guy, and he's probably read over 1,000 of them. I probably have read over 200 of those articles now. So the notebook is now additionally based on the neuroscience research So it's a much clearer book. People are responding much more quickly. We're very excited about it. But the first book was based on my experience. And as you might remember, I dove into chronic pain myself around 1988, just after I started my practice in Seattle. And I kept spiraling down and down and down. I went through medications, rehab. uh, Because you were in pain yourself. Yeah, I developed chronic pain myself. Yeah, I developed neck pain, back pain. I couldn't sleep. And what I didn't realize at the time that there are over 30 symptoms of an adrenalized nervous system. And the worst part of my ordeal, I had 17 of those at the same time. So I had migraine headaches, ringing in my ear, burning sensations in my feet and around my face. I had skin rashes that would pop up over my entire body. I developed extreme anxiety. It eventually evolved into a major depression obsessive-compulsive disorder, PTSD. So I had 17 of those symptoms at the same time. I didn't realize until 2011 when I heard a lecture by Dr. Schubner out of Detroit where he pointed out that all these symptoms result from an adrenalized nervous system. So it happened when I came out of this whole process literally by accident around 2003 why all the symptoms disappeared, and they remained disappeared.
1: We're going to talk about that exactly, wow. Why, how they disappeared. But, but first, I'd love for you to say something about just what is pain and what are the types of pain? And is pain real?
2: Well, first of all, pain is necessary. I mean, you cannot survive on this planet without pain. There are people that are born without pain fibers that survive about 10 to 15 years. Their problem is they can't protect themselves. So the way the body works, your nervous system is a junction box where you have all the sensory input that comes into the central nervous system. So the way we survive on this planet is that we're processing sensations every second that allows you to remain safe. It's called the nociceptive system. So as I'm sitting here, I'm unconsciously shifting in my chair. I'm not staring at bright lights. I'm not putting my hand on hot top it on hot objects because my body is going to keep my behavior in a range that is safe. So when I feel pain, whether it's bright lights, loud sounds, physical sensations, hot, cold, sharp, dull, then my body acts in a way to avoid that sensation. So what happens when you have sensations that are pleasant, your body secretes dopamine and oxytocin and you feel relaxed. When your body experiences sensations that are unpleasant, Painful again it could be light, sound, touch, feel. Then your body secretes adrenaline and cortisol. Then you feel anxiety. Then you have a, then you have a withdrawal response. So it turns out that anxiety is the pain. Now humans have a major problem: is that thoughts do the same thing. Every living creature has a withdrawal response to protect to protect themselves; otherwise, they wouldn't survive. From a one-cell organism to a fish, to a mammal, to a reptile. Every creature has a withdrawal protective response. Humans have the same thing, except we also have thoughts. So the thoughts can be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. If they're unpleasant, your body secretes adrenaline and cortisol. It goes to the same part of the brain as the physical sensations do, and you have the same chemical response.
1: So you're saying that even uh, our thoughts... You just said it that that it, like we touch a hot stove and we feel pain. but if we think like a, a something that makes us anxious or we're worried about something, the same part of our brain lights up and we and hormones are secreted. Right. The, that adrenal glands are firing and cortisol right. is firing and it's just as if we touched a hot stove.
2: They even do research on this. It's called Unpleasant Repetitive Thoughts, or URTs. So it goes to the same part of the brain. The chemical response is essentially the same. So when you feel anxiety, all you're feeling is a chemical surge. The problems that humans have compared to every other living creature is that you cannot escape your thoughts. So probably the basis for chronic pain is being trapped by your thoughts. Every human being has this problem. Now, there's ways of disguising it that we can talk about later, but the bottom line, every human being has a problem. You cannot, you cannot escape your thoughts. You either suffer with them, and they get worse as you get older, with just pure repetition. If you suppress them, it makes things even worse. We all know that. And probably one of the biggest links to opioid addiction is suppression of thoughts. So we mask things with different addictions, to try to mask the thoughts, which really doesn't work either. So when you suffer, suppress, or mask, you're in trouble. Every human being has this problem.
1: So in, just going back to the, the causes of pain, uh, so you're talking about there's, there's structural pain, Correct. non-structural pain, and nervous system pain. Can you say well, something?
2: So remember, the common denominator is the nervous system. So let's talk about just the physical sensation of pain for a second. So, the source of pain can be non structural, which is inflammation of tendons and ligaments. Probably 95% of pain in the body has to do with the size of the blood vessels, inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't see it on a test. So, we call that non structural. The second source, which is I call structural, in other, in other words, you have a bone spur with matching symptoms, that's a structural problem. That is the only time the surgery is effective if you have a structural problem that you can correct. You can surgically correct pain unless you can see the source.
1: So you, can, you can't see a ligament or, or muscle pain. That won't show up in a uh some sort of x-ray or whatever, MRI or CAT scan or whatever. It just no. doesn't show up. Right. Yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about what I think you describe pain circuits. Right. Yeah. So because there's something that's happening that that happens uh, uh, over and over again, there are pain circuits or pain pathways. So right. let's talk about that.
2: So, one of the analogies I use with my patients is that of an athlete learning a skill. And what happens with repetition, you lay down these pathways, people call it muscle memory. It's actually neurological memory. So with repetition, you learn to do something over and, and over and over again. And it has to be very specific specific repetitions to order in order to learn that skill. Pain is very specific. The problem with pain impulses is that they come in so quickly that the brain memorizes it within three to six months. And we all know about phantom limb pain, where people have their legs amputated. I am an orthopedic surgeon. I've done my share of amputations. It's very dramatic to see the limb be discarded. But before you require an amputation, usually you've lost a blood supply or some reason. Trauma is usually quite painful before you, you lose the limb. So... About 95% of people have phantom sensations after they've lost the limb, but over half of them have the same pain they had before the limb was amputated. It's like
1: a memory of it.
2: Absolutely. The brain has memorized that pathway. So, for instance, another metaphor I use is that when you turn on a light switch, what happens? The light goes on. But the light doesn't go on at the switch. It goes on where the light is. So when the pain switch, for instance, to your leg is on, it doesn't matter whether the leg is there or not. That pain switch is on. Remember, all pain, this just simply call it unpleasant sensations, have to be interpreted by the nervous system as pleasant or unpleasant.
1: So if you're saying like the light switch, juice to that light bulb is still there. Like you wouldn't put your finger in an empty socket. Right. Because that juice is there, that pathway is there. Right. Uh so that's like the light bulb is like the leg. Right. But the leg, the light bulb and the leg, they've been removed. Right. But that juice is still there. Yeah, that's is a great, that,
2: I haven't thought of it that way. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So you say something, of, uh, there's a phrase you use in, in your, your work, in your book, you say that just kind of blew my socks off. You say chronic pain is unresolvable by trying to To resolve it. Correct. So there's no fixing pain circuits.
2: But where's your attention? Uh, Let's just mention neuroplasticity for a second. All right. Which has become very um, clear now that's an issue.
1: We're going to talk about neuroplasticity in just one moment. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he is the author of the revised edition, Back in Control, The Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he is the author of the revised edition, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his fantastic website that has so many resources. David, I was so impressed with your website, and I know your wife, Babs, also helped with it. And it's uh, for people who want to check it out, it's backincontrol.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And David, we're talking about pain circuits, and you were about to tell us about neuroplasticity and what that has to do with
2: pain circuits. Well, I think if we start thinking about the whole process in terms of pain circuits or pathways in general, it all makes a lot of sense. And so with repetition, once you memorize circuits, they are embedded and they are permanent. It's just like riding a bicycle. Once you know how to ride a bicycle, you actually cannot unlearn how to ride a bicycle. Then to go on a step further is that your brain's going to develop wherever you place its attention, right? So if you're trying to fix yourself, your attention's on yourself. So if you're trying to fix your pain, what you're inadvertently doing is you're reinforcing those same pathways. So it's the hardest and easiest concept of the whole process. It's also the key... Whereas you cannot fix yourself, and there's no goal to this process. The goal is not to get rid of your pain. The goal is to connect right with what's in front of you, with without your pain. So as you start using other pathways, the pain pathways start to atrophy. As you start re-expanding your consciousness into a different area, those pathways begin to enlarge. The other ones start to atrophy, and at some tipping point. But they point, don't go away. No, they're always there. But they do go dormant, and people do go to pain-free. So this is not about managing pain. People go pain-free all the time.
1: So if you're managing pain, you're concentrating on the pain is what you're saying. And so what you're—I'm thinking about as as a mother uh, and raising a child, I think about how, let's say— a toddler is going for a hot stove or something. Well, maybe that's not a good analogy, but they're doing something. They're crying or something. Let's say they're just fussy. Right. And so instead of saying, don't fuss, don't fuss, quit crying, you you won't say that. What you do is you find some toy that's attractive and you give them this toy or something right. and they go oh and then they forget about whatever they're fussing about and they' they so it's kind of like that isn't it that you're talking about
2: yeah you're giving me some great metaphors oh, goody. today yeah oh, no, goody. that's perfect I had not thought of that one before so yeah the other thing is um, is that pain pathways are permanent so're play pathways. Ah, this is good news. Before I move on to that concept, though, so the metaphor to consider is that of diverting a river into a different channel.
1: But let's just, going back to neuroplasticity, because that's another, like, added piece in there.
2: Right. So there's, where neuroplasticity is, is that the, we now know and I did not know this in medical school, is that the brain can create new connections, myelin, actually grow new nerve cells at any age. So we know the brain can actually contract and re-expand physically at any age. And they've documented this clip in the people in their 90s. It happens in people that are younger more quickly, but your brain can change shape any time. It can happen within days. And so that's become very clear now in sort of a standard concept. So what you're doing with these permanent pain pathways is several things. First of all, you're creating new pathways around the old pathways. And you can do that by connecting thoughts with thoughts, thoughts with physical sensations, and start creating new pathways. The second thing, which is actually quicker and more powerful, is shifting off of pain pathways into non-painful pathways. So one of the second phases of my process is that you have to let go before you can move forward. So the second stage of my website, you're basically combining forgiveness with play. In other words, you're letting go of the past in order to move forward and connect with life. So about five years ago, my own journey, again, I was in chronic pain for 15 years, and I really am essentially pain-free, is that my own journey, I realized that, again, pain pathways are permanent, right? So are play pathways. And they're complex. They're powerful. You don't have to make those up. And it's not an obsessive play to counteract the pain pathways, because then the pain pathways would still be running the show. But once you separate from your past... With forgiveness, you start redirecting your life with play, which I define as curiosity, new experiences, gratitude, wonderment, awareness. Those are all things that have a play energy to them. So that's not obsessively playing to distract yourself, although that works a little bit. But the idea is you simply direct your attention into a part of life that's excellent. One of the exercises I propose in my book, and I also talk to my patients now more and more, is to just take an hour and do a meditation where you simply remember the most enjoyable part of your life. High school, college, you know, your first date, date—that whatever era it was, remember conversations, remember your friends, remember your attitudes, remember your belief systems, and just connect with it. And it's there. And once you reconnect with that, that's not positive thinking, which is a way of suppressing negative thinking. It's simply connecting with a positive part of your brain.
1: Maybe if you're like you're brushing your teeth, you can just make a practice of uh, remembering something in your childhood that was fun. Right. Just to, like start to to practice this to 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 recall something, or or right. you're sitting at a stoplight in your car and and just say. Try and call
2: up something. So, it, it, or even the, what do you look forward? What do you have today to look forward to? Yeah. Right. And so. Or what
1: did what did I do yesterday that I that was enjoyed. wonderful?
2: And I enjoyed. But there's there's a basic problem with human consciousness. So, a friend of mine pointed out that the human brain is designed only to survive. That's it. It is not designed to have a good time. <laughs> it's not right that's his function is is to for us to survive as a species on this planet right it's competitive it's very smart very adaptable right so here's a huge problem i wrote a website paul called your personal brain scanner so if things are going well what does your brain do it starts looking for trouble. <laughs> right?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I've stopped to think about it. Yeah. Right. So uh-huh. that's a,
2: it's a big problem because... It starts
1: scanning. It starts right. scanning. Uh, what's What should I worry about?
2: Yeah, right. I get it. Start worrying about... So you're 50 years old. That Life is good. Yeah. Bills are paid. Yeah. Job is good. But then you still start worrying about retirement. Right. Or start worrying about death or start worrying about right. whatever it is your brain will go to the negative. By by definition, it's supposed to do that. So once you understand- So it's
1: doing its job.
2: It's doing its job to protect you. But remember, that part of the brain is a million times stronger. The unconscious brain is a million times stronger than the conscious brain. That's why positive thinking doesn't work, right? Well- Positive substitution is a big deal, but positive thinking is a way of trying to suppress this massive- it, it, it
1: would just be impossible. Right. It's, you're, you're up against an enormous uh, uh, juggernaut of something else going on. Right.
2: So that's why you have to separate first, then you redirect. So what you're doing is you simply separate first, and then you redirect a positive direction that like we just so talked about. So give an
1: example of separating first and re- redirecting.
2: Well, remember, as human beings, we cannot escape our thoughts, right? We you okay. suffer, suppress, or mask your thoughts, you're trapped. And then when you're trapped by anything, whether it's relationship, finances, or pain, your body becomes more and more full of adrenaline and become angry, become frustrated. So then your body is really cranked up full of adrenaline. All these physical symptoms start appearing. So then you're trapped by your thoughts, you're trapped by the pain, you're trapped by these physical sensations. It's a huge problem, right? Your, your body is fully adrenalized. So when you're in this situation, it's hard to be creative and actually direct your brain to a different direction. So one thing that we start this process off, as you well know, is it was called expressive writing. You simply write down your thoughts, and you now separate it. So it can be any thoughts. The first book say negative thoughts. The second book points out it can be any thoughts. So you simply write down your thoughts. Your thoughts are on the table. You're now physically separated from these thoughts, That space is connected. So you're
1: making them concrete. You're you're kind of taking them out of your your head, so to speak, and and putting them on paper in some way that's that's making them more concrete. So that so that you can feel like, oh, that's not who I
2: am or something. Right. And so I have people tear them up for two reasons.
1: And then you tear them up. You write them and then you tear them up. You actually Physically tear them up. up.
2: Okay. Um, shred them, burn them. Some people do all sorts of stuff with them. Uh-huh. But they can be positive or negative thoughts. They can be rational or irrational. It doesn't matter. And remember, so I have them, t- I have them tear them up for two reasons. First of all, and the first one is really critical, is to not analyze them. Uh-huh. Because where's your attention, right? We just, ta- we just talked about your brain will develop where we place its attention. So if you want to analyze your thoughts, you must well put your hand right into a hornet's nest. Remember, these are automatic survival patterns that are strong, part of the unconscious they're creating massive unconscious reactions. So if you want to spend time talking about these thoughts or solving them, you're going to reinforce them. So that's a huge part of the deal. Okay. So, I, so the two so you turn them up to write with freedom and to not analyze them.
1: Okay. All right. I I would love for you to give an example because I can hear people saying, okay, wait a minute. All right. So you mean to reduce my pay, the pain that I'm feeling? I'm feeling excruciating pain in my back, and I, it's just it's just terrible, terrible. And now you're saying to write down your thoughts and in this expressive writing, and then tear them up. And I I would love for you to share an example of someone that this has been helpful to.
2: So in the foreword of my book, there's a patient of mine by the name of Mark Owens who wrote a book called The Cry of the Kalahari. And he, at age 29 years old, went into Africa with his wife, and they spent 23 years setting setting up a wild game preserve for elephants and lions. Unbelievable story. He came back about 10 years ago, and while he's in the mountains, he set up a game reserve for grizzly bears and wolves which, by the way, did not make him popular with the local ranchers. Mm -hmm. And while up in the mountains, he was thrown off of his horse. He almost froze to death in the mountain that night. They did spine surgery the next day to stabilize his spine. He was not paralyzed, but he went on to develop eight years of chronic pain. So he had one operation, which made it worse. And by the time he came to me, two surgeons had recommended to go ahead and fuse his spine from his neck all the way to his pelvis. They called it the blue plate special. They require, I do the operation. It takes 12 hours of surgery. You go through the stomach, the chest. You go through the back. You You go through
1: the back and the the front. front,
2: Right. So, and the complication rate is documented to be about 70 to 80%. And these are major complications. So, the worst part of it is people go through this operation, and they're often worse as far as the pain. So, you go through this huge operation, the pain doesn't go away.
1: And the risk of having the body open for that long is, yeah.
2: Right. So, I looked at his skin. I'm going, Mark... I don't see anything to operate on. You have a normal spine for your age. You have some bone spurs, but that's, that does not cause pain. So he says, look, here's my book. I want you to go home and start this simple step called expressive writing. And he's going to be writing down your thoughts, tear them up. He's a PhD scientist, and he thought it was absolutely out of my mind. A friend who was with him at the time said, look, just give it a try. What do you have to lose? You have 12 hours of surgery versus doing this.
1: All right. This is a cliffhanger. Uh, I'm going to leave our listeners with this cliffhanger and remind them that I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he is the author of Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. I'm Justine willis toms You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he is the author of Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And we're talking about someone who has just come to Dr. Hanscom and, and maybe contemplating this surgery of total back fusion, just huge, huge surgery. And you gave him your book, and what happened after that?
2: Well, he's a PhD scientist. He spent all these years in Africa. I mean, he's a guy who's tough enough who only left Africa after his third assassination attempt. I mean, this guy's a really tough guy. He's in high-dose narcotics, screaming pain, is giving out. So he went home that—he went out to the Oregon coast that night, and he started to write.
1: Well, you know, did what did he think about that? I mean, you know, did he think you were nuts?
2: Yes, absolutely. He's, <laughs> he ta- I mean, he's a friend of mine now, and he just thought I was out of my mind.
1: He just said, "So, what made him even decide to, to to take you up on writing anything out?" I mean, we had a
2: friend with him who encouraged him to do that. He also realized that his that his alternative was a lot higher risk. I mean, what was his choice?
1: <laughs> I mean, what does he have to lose? Right. Huh? Well, right. Try it, maybe. Uh, yeah. But he didn't really believe that anything would happen. No, he's it.
2: actively opposed to it. Uh-huh. So he had to be talked into it. So he woke up the next morning and he realized that he was waking up without this horrible, screaming pain in his legs and that he has slept for the first time in probably eight years. So he didn't really attribute it to anything other than coincidence. He wrote the second night. He woke up the next day about 60% better and by the third day, he was eighty percent better. Within six weeks, he was completely pain-free. No pain, no drugs, no limitations. So he came to a workshop I was holding in New York called the, the Rewire, "Rewire Your Brain," held at the Omega Institute. And my wife, I, and da- my wife and I, and daughter and Dr. Luskin were putting on a workshop with about twenty people. And at the end of that workshop, he was pain-free. The only question. He asked me was, when can I ride my horse? So I just saw him with my wife about six weeks ago. He's in the mountains, chopping wood, hauling a chainsaw, pulling a tractor, hauling his horse up through two feet of snow. He is 72 years old. He looks like he's about 60. He's fully active. And he takes an occasional Tylenol. Uh So we went from potential of 12 hours of surgery, which by the way, would not have worked, on a spine that had no major abnormalities. He came out of the medical system completely and went back to a completely normal, productive life.
1: So there, there are two things there. One uh, is that now he took you up on your your doc or DOc what you call doc uh, program, right. which is direct your own care, right. which is non surgical, right. and and then the second one was, and this is what you you have done with many patients that you talk to them, you look at their MRI or their x-rays or whatever it is, and you'll say, there is nothing structurally wrong. Surgery is not going to help you. Right. That is very hard for a lot of people to accept. Right. That that I know that people just think that you're nuts because right. the pain is so real.
2: Right. But here's what I'm about. I'll just be really clear here. So the neuroscience research the last 10 years is unbelievable. Out of Australia, California, Colorado, and Chicago, and what they've showed extremely clearly is that the brain memorizes the pathways. It gets embedded in the nervous system. We now have these MRI scans that clearly show the pathways being formed. You can see them. And as they, as you go along and connect those pathways with more and more of the other life experiences, you cannot erase the memory. So it's very clear that chronic pain is a neurological diagnosis and mainstream medicine has missed it. They've completely missed it. So doing these major surgical procedures on a neurological issues, for instance with back pain surgery, there's is commonly done where people fuse people's lower back for pain. The success rate of a low back surgery for back pain is twenty-two percent.
1: You know, and if you go on the internet, because I did this, I went on the internet and I tried to look up what is the success rate for lowering pain in back surgery, and the internet is filled with all of these people and doctors and hospitals and everything saying, "Oh, eighty percent, ninety percent." I mean, they are just they are just touting it like mad, but yet. I know. I have talked to, for and just in my yeah. little experience, people who have had surgery. A lot of them are saying I, it was. I just yesterday I was with a woman. She's bent over. Right. She's bent over, and she is with a walker. Right. And I mentioned I was going to sit down with you, and she said, "Oh." I had back surgery and now look at me you know uh, so not that we're saying that it's not appropriate in in some instances that's not we're not saying that but what i know that you do when when you are going contemplating doing surgery you you make a requirement of your patients to actually try something before, prior to surgery i think you call it prehab
2: Right. So I wrote a research paper last December. It was a role of cognitive behavioral therapy, chronic pain. And what was eye-opening and disturbing at the same time, I did not realize that there are thousands of articles that document that lack of sleep, depression, anxiety, fear avoidance, catastrophizing, length of pain, medication, substance abuse, all are negative factors for surgical outcomes. That's been around for 50 years. We know that. Another paper came out in 2014 out of Baltimore showing that only 10% of surgeons are actually assessing those variables. Then another paper I came across which really upset me was that, and I did not know this data even when I wrote this book, was that if you have an operation done in the presence of chronic pain, that you can actually induce chronic pain at the new surgical site up to 40% of the time. In other words, if you have chronic back pain and you require a hernia surgery you can induce chronic pain at the hernia site up to 40% of the time. The problem we now know is that the chronic pain circuits are already lit up. In other words, these are embedded permanent circuits. You simply start plugging in body parts.
1: So let's be real clear about this. So what you're saying is that they've done some research that if you are going to do surgery on someone when they are fully lit up in pain... right? It, I I think about your analogy of a forest fire somewhere. Right. Does this apply? Mm -hmm. It does. Can can you say something about that analogy?
2: Well, the metaphor I like to, uh, one of the metaphors I use is that of a forest fire is that it takes multiple strategies to put out a fire, right? Every one of them counts. You have the air attack, you have the ground attack, you have the bulldozers, the chemicals, the water, everything counts, right? So if you leave out some of those factors, the fire can go on for a long time until it just burns itself out. Unfortunately, chronic pain, it may not burn itself out. In fact, it usually doesn't because chronic pain always gets worse with time, right? Repetition. Yes. Okay. So to successfully fight a forest fire takes multiple strategies. So what happens in medicine, we've been guilty of doing one treatment at a time for a complicated problem. So let's, let's say, let's try physical therapy. Let's try an injection. Let's try something, medication. So all of them count. They all are helpful, but they all have to be done at the same time. There's never one single answer for chronic pain. So for every person that gets better, the three parts of getting better, simply understanding the problem, number one. Secondly, you treat every aspect at the same time. The third part is the patient takes complete control. So the beauty of this process is uh, this is 90% patient-directed. You don't need a major pain clinic. Right. If you look at my Amazon website, you'll see dozens of reviews of people I've never met that are pain-free.
1: And you also, you know, really give in in this whole process that you talk about. Sleep right. is sleep, just a couple of other, uh, sleep, forgiveness, and play. We've talked a little bit about that. Right. Expressive writing. Right. And let's talk a little bit about anger and anxiety. Right. Because, like, um, anger is a... It, We feel very powerful when we're angry, or when we're in anxiety. We feel very vulnerable. Correct. So it's better to feel angry, I guess. uh, Some of us will choose anger, and it's hard to, and we get angry about our pain and 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 so describe what that circuit is, that angry anxiety circuit.
2: Well, first of all, the factor that changed our practice dramatically about seven years ago. Was addressing anger came into the practice. What I didn't realize for a long time is that I had anger issues. I actually thought I was pretty cool, <laughs> and so my identity was wrapped around would be compassionate, nice guy, all these different things. In fact, one of my lines to my wife was, "I'm a good catch because I've dealt with my anger issues because I've been in counseling and therapy, all sorts of stuff." And I had intellectually. And she
1: just sort of raised her eyebrows, huh? <laughs> I don't think
2: she necessarily no. believed me at the time. <laughs> yeah, and but. What happens is that, um, remember, the antidote to anxiety is control. So if something makes you anxious, you control yourself or the situation to solve the problem, right. right? Problem solve, anxiety decreases. When you lose control of the situation causing anxiety, your body secretes more adrenaline to regain control and you become angry. Anger is simply anxiety on adrenaline and cortisol. It's the body's survival response to get the need met.
1: Wait, I, I like that. A- anger is, is uh, anxiety on on Adrenaline. steroids. Yeah, let's yeah say. exactly. <laughs> you know? yeah.
2: no, it's just anxiety on it's, steroids. So it's the yeah. same thing. So, but the problem is, is that at the same time, the feeling of anger is very powerful. Covers up that feeling of being being vulnerable. Yeah. So at the same time, it's actually covering up the feeling of anxiety. It's really adrenalizing the body. Yeah, it's similar to driving your car down the freeway in second or third gear. So yeah. your your engine's yeah. revving away, rubbing, it's right. going to away, and eventually it starts to break down.
1: So this is where y- you look for an alternative, and you do that practice of writing down that expressive writing, tearing it up. You do you try and get good night sleep. You and right. you pay attention to your sleep patterns. And uh, you uh, also, what was the other one? Uh, another one that I'm trying to you, you. Oh, you you create play, or you create something that's enjoyable. You 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 move your thought patterns towards that which you enjoy, rather than than staying on that habit of always being you know the negative and what your what your pain is and all of that. Right. And that's a habit.
2: So I think, though, the book is a little tricky in that it's not really formulaic. In other words, you don't do this, this, and this, and you get better. That's true. It's not
1: step one, two, three.
2: Right. So everybody does it completely differently. So I wrote a website post. Remember I said earlier that, that there's no goal to the project? Yes. So I wrote a website post a few months ago called She Just Let Go. And so remember, if you're trying to fix the circuits, you're adrenalizing yourself. And I have people who really engage in all the exercises really hard. They're really diligent about it. And all of it's grace at groundwork, but really is reconnecting with yourself by reconnecting with other people. A sense of play helps that dramatically. But once you sort of let go, let it happen, in other words, you can't fix yourself, but you can allow your brain to heal. So this is an opening up and healing process. So that's, for instance, once you've done the mechanical writing, I point out that's not the solution, it's just the starting point. So it opens things up. Then you can redirect almost any way you want. There's mindfulness, there's meditation, there's a good glass of wine, there's a phone call to your friends. Massage, there's the volunteer work. Right? right. So what you're doing, you're expanding your consciousness into right. a different realm. As your brain expands into this different realm, again, these pain pathways become less active, and your life starts to expand in a way it can't put into words.
1: I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he is the author of Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he is the author of *Back in Control: A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain*. And we're talking about uh, not just back pain; we're we're talking about pain, emotional pain, and and physical pain, all all sorts of pain. And I, I want to go back, David, if I may, on uh, something we talked about earlier about our our thoughts that we can't stop our thoughts and. And you mentioned something about meditation, and I know that you've written a blog called The Angry Meditator. Right. Uh, yeah, so please uh, describe what you were talking about in that blog.
2: So I want to make sure that I have a huge amount of respect for a skilled meditator. So technically, you're supposed to allow your thoughts and feelings to exist, then you separate, and then you redirect So a highly skilled meditator can do this entire doc process with just meditation. The problem is when you're in pain, trying to live life, deal with life stresses, it's really hard to learn that skill. And I tried it for a couple of years. I tried it with my patients for a couple of years. There are very highly developed programs around the country that use meditation as one of their primary tools, and they have a lot of success with that. But for a lot of people, including myself, I couldn't do it. So the writing exercise in my mind, I call it mechanical meditation, where it does the first two parts of the process. You create an awareness of the thought. Now you're physically separated. That distance is now connected to vision and feel, which is part of the unconscious part of the brain. Then the third part of brain, and, ha- and
1: you write it down.
2: You you write write it down and rip it up. Right. So you've now separated. Then the third part of redirecting your brain can be, again, good music, good why, good friends, and it can be meditation or mindfulness. So simply directing your nervous system a different direction is the third part of meditation anyway. So yeah, training yourself not to react to thoughts is a huge aspect of meditation which is very effective and for many people it works. Again, the process is not formulaic. Everybody does this completely differently. So for some people, meditation can be the primary tool. The theme about the writing, I emphasize it is not the solution. It is only the starting point. However... It is the only aspect of the process that everybody has to start with. Everything else, comp- everything else is completely open to interpretation. Now, be very
1: clear: what is the part of the process that everyone needs to start with?
2: The expressive writing.
1: The expressive writing. And over 300, That is the beginning of it.
2: Just the beginning is over three hundred research papers. And that's
1: always the beginning. Of always it. the beginning. That's the same for everyone.
2: But it is not the solution. All right. Right, got it.
1: All right. Okay, you're entering the highway here, but it, but different people are going to go different directions
2: correct. from there. Right. Right. So you, you remember the running does awareness separation, then you have to reprogram. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: So do you have any stories you can tell? Any examples of how this has functioned for different people?
2: So. First of all, I never expected people to go to pain-free. So we watched, since I've talked to you last, we've watched probably over six or 700 patients go to pain-free. We now have almost 100 of them with surgical lesions go to pain-free. So I had a professor come to me. Wait, have,
1: when you say uh-huh, have surgical lesions, le, what is that? In other,
2: words, in other words, they have structural problems that require surgery. Okay, so, so I, if
1: something shows up, they, it, it shows that they require surgery. Right,
2: so I put them on the schedule going them ready to so go. So they're
1: they're, uh, they're going to go right. to surgery. Yeah. They've got the date set.
2: Severe stenosis, matching symptoms, ready to go. So then we started the prehab for 8 to 12 weeks on all of them. And that's when people started to cancel the surgery because their pain disappeared.
1: So so in the prehab, that's where they start off and they do... The, but this is before they, they've scheduled scur- surgery. Right. They have not they're they're not in surgery yet it's right. some weeks away right they start to do the you require them to do the expressive writing and they start this prehab instead right. of rehab we're right. talking about prehab right. and so there they start this but they're still expecting to keep this date of surgery right. and something happens Pain what, goes away and so they call you up and they say uh, david i'm sorry uh I'm not going to show up for surgery. The right. pain is gone.
2: Well, they come in for the preoperative visit for a final checkup. Okay, and I go, well, "Is your pain still severe enough to undergo surgery?" And they go, "No, pain's gone."
1: And you know that's a big deal because surgery—if if you look at it, it's a high-stake, risk situation. No Correct. matter what you do, yep. I mean, the best surgeons in the world—they're—they're they're always. Unknown factors right. that, that are there and, right. and, and unknown outcomes right. when you put yourself into that. So I would imagine it's a big deal for someone to decide Absolutely. to do surgery.
2: Right. So I was surprised. My first book said actually do the surgery first, then this later. And the data says that if you do surgery in the presence of chronic pain, you can cause chronic pain. You can make it worse. So what we're doing with prehab is simply putting in place proven medical Treatments, period. We're just doing what the, we're just doing what the medical literature says to do. And so by honoring those concepts, people are going to pain-free. Right. What's also fascinating when I ask patients if they want to get rid of their pain, their physical pain, versus getting getting rid of their emotional pain, almost everybody wants to get rid of their emotional pain. They can sort of deal with the physical pain. But what they can't deal with is emotional pain. And the
1: anxiety and all of that. Yeah. And
2: for me personally, what took me out, in other words, I'm a major spine surgeon. I did not get to be a major spine surgeon by having anxiety. I came to be a major spine surgeon by suppressing anxiety. Right? And so all of a sudden I broke out in panic attacks. Yes. So I didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing I did to deserve having panic attacks. Right? All I did was suppress my past, which was reasonable, and started to move forward and my body didn't believe me. And so this adrenaline kept going and going and going. So I went from no anxiety to panic attacks. Then for 13 solid years, I developed extreme anxiety, horrible. And by far and away, I have knee pain now, which I can deal with pretty easily, quite easily. I have lots of pain free days. I could not deal with the anxiety. It was absolutely unspeakable misery.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and that's when you figured out these processes?
2: Well, I would say it unfolded. You know, David,
1: do you still do this? I mean, do you just do these processes once or do you continue to do them?
2: Every day. I I write every day. I do mindfulness during surgery now. In fact, I teach my fellows mindfulness-based surgery. So as we've taught our fellows this mindfulness-based surgery based on somatic tools, my complication rate's gone down probably 80% surgically. My fellows go in, out into their practice with probably 20% of the complications I had my first five years. So by connecting to what is, in other words, this is about connecting to who you are, connecting to the movement and surgery, connecting to this conversation, connecting to your pain, whatever, you're, whatever is in front of you, you simply connect to it. So we think that suppressing thoughts may be the essence of chronic pain.
1: Right, so so you become aware. You don't turn away from Correct. them.
2: Key you know, is awareness. Awareness. So, and we talked about this earlier, but emotional pain and physical pain are basically considered equivalent entities by the brain. And again, the most enjoyable part of this process for me personally and for my patients is that the anxiety drops dramatically. Relationships improve. It's just unbelievable how people's consciousness expands, their lives expands, I mean, I come come out of my clinic every day just absolutely inspired by these people. It's Uh unbelievable. Tell me a story. So I have a gentleman who owned his own business. He had to give it up. He still owned the business, but other people ran it. He came to my office with horrendous total body pain, on crutches, high-dose narcotics, and gave him the book, gave him the website. He sort of reluctantly engaged in it. And then he got pretty good. He got really quite good for about six months. All of a sudden, he came into my office, just bam, right on the very bottom floor. And this always happens. And I've learned that when you go back into the hole, you simply don't want to give up your pain because you want to stay a victim, right? So I had a blood-curdling conversation with him in that I said, look, what do you want to do? How long do you want to hold on to your pain? And to make a long story short, he left the office. And he came back three months later, pain-free, minimal drugs, back running his business, after 10 solid years in the medical system. I mean, the medical bill for his narcotics was 800, $800 a month just for the medications. Oh, my gosh.
1: Now, what you're saying is that there is a tendency for us to get in the habit of being in pain. And, and, and so we might be free of it, but then we slide back into it because of what? It becomes part of who we are, our identity, or what?
2: Well, all of, all of the above. In other words, it's a pattern, but it's also very powerful, and pain is addicting. Pain is is addictive. In my mind, actually, the only obstacle to healing is your willingness to give up your pain. That's it.
1: Right. You know, I'm thinking of an old Buffy St. Marie song. She says, give up your precious wound, let go the precious, the, the tempting memory of the pain. Right. It's called Angel. It's just a fabulous piece of music. And that's what you're talking about. Give up the tempting memory
2: of the pain. Right. And, and here's the hardest part and easiest part of the process. You are never going to wake up ever and want to give up your pain. It's never going to happen. <laughs> so you just have to do it. I have to give up my pain probably. It's a choice
1: then is what you're saying.
2: I make the choice probably five to seven times every day.
1: All right. You. All right. So... There is no end point
2: or beginning or or end.
1: beginning so it's it's always an unfolding process of
2: choice this very second.
1: yeah, oh David, I'm just so thankful that you came here today. Oh, I've enjoyed this conversation i I'm just I'm excited by it and feel the possibility that we really can start to live in a different way. Possibly without this invasive surgery, uh, that th- that and be out of pain. It's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've been here with Dr. David Hanscom, and he is the author of Back in Control. A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And this book also, I I want to tell you, is also available on audio. And you can check out his website with all the many, many, many resources there. It's um, backincontrol.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3618.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California.